Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest my holdest fast my name and has not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. In a well-known story that's probably part of Greek mythology, an army comprised of several Greek cities had waged war against this well-fortified city of Troy for a decade. When, when the final stage uh, of the battle of the war took place and the, the siege against the city of Troy had failed. The Greeks retreated, leaving behind supposedly this massive wooden horse. The residents of Troy assumed this horse was either a concession of surrender or intended to be a peace offering by the Greeks, and they saw no harm in bringing it right on inside the city's walls. And that night, several Greek soldiers quietly emerged from the Trojan horse and opened the city's gates wide for the Greek army that had not truly retreated. They were waiting outside. And the city, which had withstood the overt attacks from their enemy, was soon destroyed by letting what was outside come inside. That story serves as a good analogy for the experience of the church at Pergamos, as well as many other churches throughout history that have followed their example. The church at Pergamos had resisted the overt attacks of the wicked world. They continued, it, it, it seemed, to uphold the love of the gospel, maintain their faith in the Lord Jesus. And yet they had also begun to compromise with the outside world. Compromise with the world is a Trojan horse that will soon lead to the destruction of a church from the inside out. When the Lord prayed for his disciples in John 17, listen to part of his prayer in John 17 verses 14 through 16. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If it is the prayer of Jesus, it should be the desire of every one of his churches that we strive to be in the world, but not of the world. He doesn't want us to be 
removed from the world as a whole. He wants us to be faithful witnesses in that world that he's placed us in. Even though he wants us in the world, he doesn't want the world in us. The goal of the church has been summarized well by describing the church like it's a, it's a boat that's moving through the water. You need your boat in the water, but you don't want water in your boat. You want to be in the world. You want to be a witness for Jesus. But at the same time, the church has to take a stand against the worldliness that would seek to, to come into us. Otherwise, we are just like everyone in the world. And when we declare, look at what Jesus has done for us, that declaration has to have the conclusion of, well, not much. It doesn't look like he's done much. You're just like everyone else. What we'll learn from the church at Pergamos is that the Lord's church is called to live among the world without compromising morally or doctrinally with the world. A church will either have peace with the world or peace with the Lord. It will not have both. As with most of the messages to the churches, we get a hint of what's to come in the way that the Lord introduces himself in unique terms. He, his introduction to the church at Pergamos carries this sense of foreboding in verse 12. To the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In one way, this is a reminder of how he had already appeared to John back in Revelation chapter 1. John says in chapter 1, verse 16, that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. But looking forward, Jesus is about to give a message to this compromising church. And during that message, he wants them to remember he is the one that is armed. This carrier of the sharp Double-edged sword is the omnipotent son of God and he wields it in righteousness. This is not a, a happy introduction. There are, from the opening words, essentially storm clouds on the horizon. The sword which Jesus carries, it is the word of God. I think that's why Revelation 1 pictures it coming out of his mouth, right? Where words come from. Hebrews 4.12 describes the word of God as living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates as far as separating the, the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and it can even judge between the thoughts and intents of your heart. When the Lord himself is introduced here as the one who's carrying the sword, he is not bearing that sword in vain. He intends to use it. The use of that sword is that it pierces and divides, Hebrew says. That, that means that it, it penetrates and it separates. It, it stabs and it slashes. It is sharp enough to separate things that even seem inseparable, like the soul and the spirit. The word of God is meant to enter into the deepest part of you, and as it enters into you, it is both going to cut and cure. But don't have any doubt about this, that it's, it's the, the cutting, not the curing, which Jesus envisions here. He's, he's going to describe down in verse 16 exactly how he'll use that sword. And it's not 
peaceful. He says, I will fight against them. Compromise with the world is a sure sign of impending judgment. A little compromise leads to a lot of compromise. You realize within a few hundred years, the very churches that suffered persecution for refusing to worship the Roman emperor would compromise so much that the Roman emperor would declare their watered-down Christianity to be the state-sponsored religion. So listen, if the reminder, right, where Jesus introduces this and says, look, I'm, I'm carrying this sword. If that's not foreboding enough, then keep reading because that's not all that Jesus says. His first words are essentially, I've got this sword and I know what you're doing and I know where you live. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I know your works. I know where you dwell, right? Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. You have no secrets from Jesus. Does the fact that he knows your works and where you dwell, he knows what you do and where you live, is that a comfort to you or is it a concern to you? He says that where they live here is the place where Satan's throne is. And a little bit about Pergamus or Pergamum might help put this into some context. Pergamus was already considered an ancient city by the time this was written in the first century. It's about 45 miles north of last week's city of Smyrna. It's about 20 miles inland for y'all this way, off of the coast of the Aegean Sea. And it was built on this conical-shaped hill that rose up about 1,000 feet from the surrounding plain. And so much like Smyrna, it was a, site of emperor worship, and it boasted on that hill this large complex to the worship of many pagan gods. And while it had monuments and temples to many gods, there were two that were especially revered in Pergamos. The first is Asclepius, the supposed god of healing and medicine. Asclepius was symbolized by a snake wrapped around a staff, the medical symbol of today, which has a staff and a serpent, comes directly from Asclepius, who's, whom the, the residents of Pergamos actually called Asclepius Soter, Asclepius our Savior. Meanwhile, the greatest altar in Pergamos was dedicated to Zeus. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This colossal monument to Zeus actually resembled a throne. It was a whole temple that looked like a throne. And when Jesus says they live where Satan dwells, it might be a reference to that throne-like temple or maybe the snake symbol of Asclepius, or just a combination of all of the worship of the, the pagan gods that were embraced there and the Roman emperor worship that took place there. Jesus described the cities, look, this is, this is Satan's dwelling place, and you live there. 
One more quick fact about Pergamos. It was awarded a rare honor by Rome. Remember, remember how in the Gospels, the Sanhedrin council knew that they, when they condemned Jesus, they were going to have to take him to Pilate because Rome reserved the right of execution for itself. Well, Pergamos was a rare exception. Rome had awarded the city a sword symbolizing their right in the Roman Empire to judge and execute criminals. And so that might be even another reason why this symbolic introduction of Jesus saying, look, I've got this sharp two-edged sword, right? The, The sword of Rome is not the sword of authority. Jesus is the ultimate judge. Now, on the positive side, the church at Pergamos had maintained a witness for Christ, even in the face of this strong opposition and this challenging environment. Jesus says in verse 13, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The church had not knuckled under to the pressure to deny Christ. They claimed him as their own. They identified themselves with him. They not only held tightly to his name, they refused to deny his faith. Last week I told you about the faithful martyr named Polycarp in Smyrna, and history tells us all about his story. Well, nothing has come down to us in history about this man Antipas that I can say with Certainty, early tradition suggests that he was a pastor in the church at Pergamos who refused emperor worship and was executed by being roasted in a brass bowl. They'd make a a brass uh, statue of a bowl that was hollow and they would put someone in it and light a fire underneath. There's a good chance whatever the nature of his execution, Antipas had been executed in a way that the church at Pergamos was required to watch. Jesus says, look, he was, he was my faithful martyr among you. Literally, his, his faithful witness, faithful even to the point of death. This is an enthusiastic praise from the Lord Jesus, and yet not all is well with the church. Look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So despite the church's stand for Christ in the very seat of Satan, Jesus goes on to admonish them for moral and doctrinal compromise. Now, this was not true of everyone in the church. The idea of that phrase, when Jesus says, you have there those who hold, you see that in verse 14 and verse 15. The idea of that phrase is you have some there who hold. In other words, not the entirety of the church membership was compromising in this way, but within the church, there were some who held the doctrine of Balaam and some who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam in verse 14 is accompanied by a description, just in case you don't remember back in Numbers. Balaam, it says, he had taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, 
and to engage in sexual immorality. Back in the book of Numbers, as it tells the story of Balaam, it was at a time that the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They were about to enter into the promised land. And there was this Moabite king named Balak who was frightened by, you know, the two and a half million or so Israelites that were about to cross the river and come into his territory. And so he called on this sorcerer named Balaam to curse the people of God using the name of God. And three times they went up to a mountaintop overlooking a portion of the uh, camp of the Israelites. And all three times Balaam opened his mouth to curse them and blessings came out instead. But that wasn't the end of the story. When Balaam finally, after the third time, conceded to King Balak, look, God's not going to allow me to curse them. He also had an alternative plan. If we can't curse the Hebrews, maybe we can get the Hebrews to curse themselves. Take some of the attractive Moabite women and send them down there into the Hebrew camp and have them draw the men out to sexual immorality. Have them convince the men to eat the food that's sacrificed to our idols, to worship those idols. And the plan worked. God had insisted that his people be separate from the sexual immorality and the pagan practices of the wicked world, the godless nations around them. And as they began to compromise and embrace these things, the anger of God was kindled. 24,000 people were killed as a result. Moses called that compromise a plague on the congregation of Israel. And now the Lord calls the church at Pergamos in the same way, he says, this is a plague on the, the church congregation. Within the Lord's church at Pergamos, there were some who had embraced sexual immorality and idol worship that was acceptable in the world. Secondly, Jesus says, there's some among you that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. I hope you remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the Lord addressed the church at Ephesus. We said this Nicolaitan doctrine is, was teaching a kind of lawlessness, a do whatever you want to do mentality. Go ahead and sin because God's grace is greater. So while the doctrine of Balaam was saying, go ahead and compromise with this worldly idol worship, it's not all that bad. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, no, it's not all that bad. Actually, it's good. Go ahead and embrace it. In Revelations 2, 6, Jesus said that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He tells the church here at Pergamos, this, that doctrine is a thing that I hate. But what the church at Ephesus has, had widely, wisely rejected, the church at Pergamos foolishly accepted. They embraced it. And I want you to think through this with me for a moment. It is evident that some members of the church who proclaimed the name of Christ had compromised doctrinally and morally by participating in pagan feasts and idol worship and sexual immorality, all the while continuing to maintain that they were, in fact, disciples of Jesus. 
They ignored the Old Testament example of God's judgment on Israel for the same kind of sins. They wouldn't take heed to the New Testament teaching from James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in their willingness to compromise in these beliefs and behaviors, they accepted what God had told them to reject. I hope you followed that because here comes the hard part. As Jesus addresses this issue within the church, he is not only speaking to the individuals at fault in those particular sins, he sees the church as a whole at fault. This is a message to the entire church at Pergamos. And in addressing the church as a whole, Jesus doesn't just single out those who had accepted these beliefs and behaviors. He's dealing mostly with the seemingly faithful members of the church who had accepted their acceptance of those beliefs and behaviors. A church that fails to deal with issues of doctrinal and moral compromise among its members, that is not a good church with a few bad members. It is a compromising church. When you hear the, the words of this writer named Daniel Aiken, he says, compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons. This is so for at least four reasons. It never occurs quickly, so you hardly notice the change. It always lowers the original standards you once held important. It is seldom offensive because it is perceived as loving. It eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. It has been well said that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept, and what, what that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. Has, has that been our experience? Has our church that is meeting today more than 60 years after its founding become accepting of beliefs and behaviors now which we would not have tolerated 50 years ago? And it has happened so slowly, you hardly notice the change. It has lowered the standards that we once thought were important it hasn't seemed offensive because tolerating those things is considered the loving thing to do. And it's led this generation to accept or maybe even celebrate what the former generation wouldn't have even tolerated. We shouldn't assume that the message that the Lord has for Pergamos has nothing to say to us. I know that they're dealing with with actual pagan idols. But we learned a couple of weeks ago that idolatry is more than just worshiping a statue. When we have members of the church who continue to show that they're too concerned with their self to be expected to serve, when we have members of the congregation who have embraced sexually, sexually immoral lives and are steadfastly unwilling to turn from that, when we have members of the assembly who cannot be persuaded for years to actually assemble with the assembly, 
then it isn't that we're a model church that just has a few outliers among its membership. It's that we're doing exactly what Pergamos had done. We've compromised because it's the easiest thing to do. And the responsibility for that falls, it, it, it starts right here in the pulpit. The solution doesn't begin with excluding members, although it very well will need to include that. I mean, if, if you're getting water in the boat, you bail the water out of the boat, otherwise it's going to cause you to sink. We call that church discipline, but that word discipline comes from the word discipling or discipleship, which means teaching or learning, church discipline. You need to understand church discipline is what's happening right now at this very moment as we're learning, we're being discipled from the word. But the question is whether we'll allow the word of God to disciple us, to teach us. Are we willing to obey what it has for us to learn? The wonderful thing about how the Lord Jesus deals with us in every condemnation that he gives to these churches is that every condemnation comes with an opportunity for correction. The first step is found in the very first word of verse 16. Repent. He says, repent or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent literally means to change your mind about this. If the condemnation for the church at Pergamos is that they've been compromising, the correction is to be uncompromising, to, to change your mind about it. Listen, I, I want you to know I am not reading things into this section of Scripture for a matter of convenience. This is, this is the way this Scripture teaches us. I quoted from Daniel Aiken a moment ago. Let me quote to you from John MacArthur now on this passage of Scripture. He says the call is for the church at Pergamos to exhibit, quote, a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. While tolerance is lauded in our modern culture, tolerating heretical teaching or sinful behavior in the church is not a virtue, but a sin. So serious a matter it is that should they fail to repent of their failure to discipline, Christ warns them, I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Today's non-confrontational church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church on a grand scale and faces the judgment of the Lord of the church. Look, it's, it's evident from the text that much, the majority of the church at Pergamos upheld the name of Jesus. They lived for him. They did it in a difficult place. There was much to commend them for. But Jesus said, I also have somewhat against you. There's a condemnation that came as well. They had accepted and embraced others who claimed Christ, but were compromising with the world. And Jesus warns, if those in the church who were living sinfully didn't soon face the judgment of the congregation, then the congregation as a whole was going to face judgment from the Lord Jesus. We can't ignore this. Imagine the gracious King Jesus having to take his sword after his own assembly. 
But there's a glorious promise for us if we obey. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Manna was the miraculous food from heaven provided for the Hebrews in the wilderness so that they wouldn't starve. Back in Exodus 16, 13, uh, 16.33, the Israelites took a jar of that manna and placed it in the Ark of the Covenant, putting it in there as a memorial for how God provides. I think that's the key to this hidden manna reference. If you followed along with the message and you hear what it's calling us to do, I know that there are many if not most of us who think that, well, being uncompromising, right, removing from the membership those people who do not believe or behave like disciples of Jesus, well, how does that work? How will that be a good thing for us? How will it prove to be a blessing? How could we get through it? It's sure to bring more problems than blessings, right? Well, I assure you, that our concerns about how we could get through that are not greater than the concerns of the starving Hebrews who are wandering through the wilderness facing death. God provided manna for them. The ability of God to miraculously and graciously provide for his people has not been diminished with time. There is abundant manna, and and Jesus describes it as, as hidden manna. Look, you don't have to see it In order to be obedient to the Lord, you just have to trust his promise. Repent and overcome this sin and hidden manna awaits. The Lord is going to provide for our needs in a way that we can't even begin to see it this time. Now my hope here at the last phrase is that my ignorance of the last phrase won't cause us to end on a confused note because Jesus also promises in verse 17 a white stone with a name written on it which nobody knows except the one who receives it and there is so much speculation in commentaries about what that white stone is that one of the amusing things about reading commentaries is it just proves they don't know either I'm not going to bother even listing the dozen or so possible explanations that I've read for this this week I'm just going to tell you, I'm not sure, but I also want to describe it like this, right? In in this room right over here, we have a whiteboard. If I told you, go into that room and on the whiteboard, there is a message for you. Your reaction to that is not going to be, can you tell me more about the whiteboard? It's going to be, I, I want to know the message, right? There's something written on it that's for me. This white stone, I can't tell you with confidence what it symbolizes, but I can tell you that Jesus describes it as a a writing surface. It is a strange writing surface to be sure, but it's a, a writing surface. And the real question is, what's written on it for you? And again, I can't tell you, but I have a good defense for it because Jesus says, nobody gets to tell you. The only ones who know is you and him. It's a new name, he says. You'll get hidden manna 
If we repent and obey and we turn to being uncompromising, we'll get hidden manna and each will receive a white stone with a new name. A new name in scripture, you, you know how it symbolizes this advancing, growing, changing relationship with the Lord. When Abram was called by God, he obeyed and he was given the name Abraham in this new relationship with the Lord. When, when Jacob believed God's promise, his name was changed to Israel, the walking embodiment of the people of God and his relationship with the Lord. When Saul the Pharisee repented of his self-righteousness and followed the Lord Jesus with his whole heart, he's immediately begun to be known as, as Paul in his new relationship with the Lord. If we will repent we not only will avoid the sword being drawn against us, but we'll also be united with him so that our entire and our truest identity is found in him, our relationship with him. What a blessing that is. The ultimate message to the church at Pergamos and to us by extension is that the Lord's church is called to live among the world without compromising morally or doctrinally with the world. And a church will either have peace with the world or peace with the Lord, but it cannot have both. I don't think the Lord intended this message to Pergamos and and to us, again, by extension, to be an easy one to digest and obey. But he does promise a transformed relationship with all of us who are willing to obey it.